Hello, I hope you're all having a lovely day. You're listening to Tech Fast Talks, a podcast by students for students. And I'm Omar. I'm a first year mechanical engineering student at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm here with a brand new episode for people who are passionate about looking after our planet. Please welcome today's guest, Andrew Ritchie. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Hello, Omar. Very well, thank you. Nice to speak to you this afternoon. Nice to speak to you too. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. So uh, I have uh, over 25 years uh, of experience with the oil and gas company Shell, uh, most recently as the external relations manager for Shell's UK upstream business based uh, in Aberdeen, uh, which uh, is where I live uh, and uh, work at the moment. That's great. Let's get this podcast started. So today we're talking about energy transition and climate change. So Andrew, do you think the further development of renewable energy will be achieved by increasing conversion efficiency on the technical side or economies of scale on the commercial side or a combination of both and why? Yeah, I'm I'm maybe going to take a bit of a cop out here, Omar, but I think actually your last point about it being a combination of both is probably uh, the, the expectation that I have of how things will develop in the future. Um, in my career with Shell, I don't think there's been a time uh, over the past couple of decades when we've not actively been involved uh, in technically trying to develop and scale up different renewable energy uh, opportunities. Uh, and usually it has been the commercial side of things that has been proved, uh, that has proved most challenging. So I think uh, my perspective today is that uh, uh, it will be a combination of continued improvements on the technical side. But I think uh, the challenge that we face uh, more broadly is about the commercialization of the technologies to make them more competitive and more accessible to the consumer. Great. Next question. Engineers all over the world are trying to develop the next renewable energy storage solution, whether it be lithium-ion and flow batteries, kinetic and pumped hydro, or even thermal and cryogenic. Do you think the market will be dominated by one of them or rather integrated through all of them? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be the latter. Um, One of the reflections that I have uh, that I think is shared by many others is that if you look back on the last 100, arguably 150 years, uh, much of what we take for granted in society today has been driven by the convenience and the ability for hydrocarbons to provide a a broad spectrum of different needs. Uh, And I think going forward, we're going to see much more of a patchwork of energy solutions, uh, be it how we power our homes, how we uh, use energy for mobility, uh, how we uh, use uh, energy for large-scale industrial applications. Uh, Hydrocarbons for the past 100 plus years have provided all of those needs. I think going forward, it's going to be a combination of different technologies uh, that's going to be most um, likely to win out in terms of replacing the hydrocarbons that we've come to take for granted. Yeah, I I have to agree with that. Eventually, we will have to use renewables as our only energy source. But the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. How do you think we will tackle the geographical dependence of renewable energy? Yeah, this is a a really good question and uh, I think begins to touch on uh, lots of different aspects of the challenge that is, is facing us when we think about the energy transition. Um, I mean, you said at the outset of your question that uh, eventually we will have to use renewables as our only uh, energy source. Um, uh, I I think it would be great if we can get there. I think most predictions today still expect 
that there will be a need for hydrocarbons to be used in some senses, and the challenge will be to offset the emissions that we use from those hydrocarbons where we don't have, at least today, uh, a readily available alternative to, to displace them. But coming to the second part of your question, uh, indeed, there, there is a, um, a need for much more interdependency between the different forms of energy that we will be using. Uh, and I think that interdependency driven by um, collaboration uh, and by cooperation between um, business and government to allow energy to flow uh, in a way which means that we're able to manage that um, uh, fluctuation in, in both demand but also in on the supply side from the different renewable sources will be key to uh, addressing that uh, intermittency going forward. Nice. Speaking of supply and demand, global energy usage is increasing proportionally to the exponential growth of human population. Do you think renewable energy will be enough to fully sustain our increasing energy demands, or will we have to adapt to using less energy? And how will this supply and demand ratio affect our future electricity prices? Lots in in that question, uh, Omar, but again, really, really good points. So indeed, we are seeing a significant growth uh, in population uh, of the planet globally. And um, the more people there are, the more energy they consume. And particularly when you think that there are still uh, many, many people uh, on the planet who don't have access to uh, the sort of energy that we take for granted, uh, certainly in the, in the UK. Um, so it will be a challenge going forward, both meeting that demand and seeking to meet that demand in a way which is sustainable. Um, I think what we we know is that the renewable energy options that we have have the capability to meet that demand. But again, it's that balance between technical capability and economic reality. And for some countries which are seeking to rapidly expand their energy systems, it will be looking uh, as an international community to work to support those countries to encourage them to take a more renewable and sustainable route. Um, many of us will have heard of stories about continued um, construction of coal-fired power stations uh, in the Far East, for example. Uh, and how do the international community work with those governments in the East who are, are needing to meet the demand because of their growth in population and the growth in the energy needs that they have in a, in a more sustainable way? Um, so I think that's one point. Um, you've also made the, the, the comment about do we all need to get used to using less energy? And I think for those of us in in the Western world, particularly Europe and North America, uh, where already today we use uh, a higher per capita energy than the majority of people on the planet, I think indeed we need to look uh, at how we can reduce our energy consumption. Uh, and some of that may be uh, lifestyle choices that we, we need to make. Some of it may be how we look to actually um, utilize energy in our lives uh, from our homes to the way we, we move around. So I think that's a factor as well. Um, what does it mean for prices? Well, that again is part of the, uh, the challenge and the equation that people are always seeking to balance. Um, people want their energy to be clean, convenient and cheap. Uh, and usually any one resource can meet two out of those three criteria quite ably. It's balancing across all three, which will be the challenge uh, and, and where um, different energy sources are going to need to be competitive if they're going to win out. Yeah, a lot of factors to take in there and quite a lot of room for improvement when it comes to this. 
Next up, solar power is the only non-utility renewable energy source that can be used residentially. How abundant do you think residential solar will be in the years to come? And will there be a benefit for people to use solar as opposed to the grid? Yeah, it's another good question. Um, And I think, again, plays somewhat to this um, balance of of technology and commerciality. Uh, I think if, um, as we've seen uh, in in some senses in the last uh, decade or so, if the price of solar panels continues to come down uh, to a level at which they become more attractive for residential use, then I think we should expect to continue to see an increase in uh, solar panels, uh, even in the UK, where, as those of us who live here know, uh, we have uh, varying degrees of sunshine at various times of the year. Um, But the combination of solar with uh, advances in battery technology, I think, uh, begin to offer a much more attractive option to homeowners to be able to uh, not only produce electricity from solar power, but then also store it. Uh, and I think the, the models that have been used uh, historically have seen people producing domestic solar power, but then feeding it into the grid from which they then draw down their electricity. Uh, I think going forward in the future, there may be much more option for people to look at uh, domestic home storage uh, and how they then fuel uh, a variety of different electrical needs uh, from residential solar power. Yeah, there's there's actually quite a lot of technology that I've heard of, like the uh, Tesla Powerwall which is a uh, lithium-ion um, residential battery that can be fitted into homes. Yes. But away from that, a lot of companies, governments, and geo-units are pledging various net zero dates. What year do you think is the soonest realistic date to officially achieve this goal? Uh, yeah, very, very hard to predict. Um, uh, I think for, for many countries and governments, uh, 2050 has, has become the goal. Um, which is less than 30 years away. Um, uh, and I think most uh, governments would, uh, would say that those, uh, their aspiration to achieve net zero by 2050 is, uh, is going to be very challenging because of the significant uh, changes that need to be brought about uh, in everything from uh, the, the fleet with which we uh, move people and goods through to how we heat our homes, through to how we use energy in large-scale industrial use. Um, I'm not going to put a prediction on when the the earliest feasible date is. Um, Arguably, again, the technology exists for us to do it uh, quickly. The challenge becomes how you bring society along with you and do it in a way which is commercial uh, and sustainable uh, and just. Um, There's a lot of focus now on, on making sure that the transition that we go through from an energy perspective Uh, doesn't leave anybody behind, uh, recognising that there is a significant percentage of homes, certainly within the UK today, which would be considered to be in uh, in a fuel poverty situation. So how do we make sure that in going through the transition, uh, we don't further prejudice people's ability to actually um, stay warm and safe uh, through the the cycles of our our, uh, climate over the course of a year? Okay, so oil and gas production very much depended on if the geography of the country had oil in it. But which country do you think will produce the greatest amount of renewable energy in the future and why? Um, so I think, again, uh, it, it, there's perhaps a, uh, an analogy with, with 
what we've seen in terms of oil and gas production, there would be some uh, geographical locations which are better suited to certain types of renewable energy than others. Uh, for example, um, in the Middle East, there are large-scale solar farms now uh, which are generating significant um, uh, amounts of renewable electricity because of um, the, the, the very good climate conditions that exist there. Uh, if you look at the North Sea, uh, um, in the, off the UK, we, we have a very good wind resource. Uh, while I don't understand technically uh, the, the details of it, uh, I, I've heard it reported that, that we have a very high calibre wind resource of the UK. So it's natural that we're looking to rapidly expand our uh, our offshore renewable production from wind energy in, in this country. So I think different countries will need to um, look at where they are most advantaged. Uh, and then um, in terms of the amount of renewable energy that, that then they're able to produce, again, it probably comes down to that um, uh, that commercial side of things. Um, because if if uh, if some countries are able to overproduce what they need, it becomes potentially an export capability in the same way that oil and gas has been an exportable commodity uh, in the past. Fun fact, if we covered just 1.2% of the Sahara Desert in solar panels, we can meet the energy needs of the entire world. So yeah, um, next up. As with oil and gas, renewables are also implemented offshore as well as onshore. In your opinion, which type will be more abundant and cost-effective in the future, and why? So I, I think up until now, it's been uh, more cost-effective, if you will, to deploy onshore um, uh, renewable energy, particularly, say, if you take wind energy. Uh, I think what we've seen in the UK and we've seen uh, in some other place, places in the world um, the, the, the renewable wind business has started onshore and has progressively moved offshore. And uh, I think the opportunity going forward is likely to be much more offshore than onshore. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, I, I think we've, we've seen that um, with any large-scale industrial project, which is what a renewable energy project would be, um, there, are, uh, there are those who are pro and in favor of the development, and there are those who have concerns, either because of the uh, visual or other impact that that project may be um, uh, imposing upon their locality. So I think uh, offshore, usually those concerns are less, but there are still other stakeholders that you need to interface with in terms of other users of the sea, uh, fishermen and the like. But floating offshore wind, which takes you out from the coast even further, I think presents a significant additional opportunity to to uh, have wind farms which are less um, intrusive and um, uh, take away land from other uses and other purposes. Uh, so my expectation is that uh, certainly when it comes to uh, wind energy, we'll see it progressively move more uh, from the onshore to the offshore, possibly moving further offshore. Um, with the advances that are being made in, uh, in floating wind technology. Yeah, I've, uh, I've even heard of offshore solar developments recently. So there's a lot of, lot of expansion when it comes to renewable energy, offshore and onshore. Indeed. I mean, we've, we've actually got in the southern North Sea uh, some normally unmanned uh, platforms 
which have solar panels on them, providing primary energy for uh, for certain functions on our on our on some of our smaller assets. So uh, yeah, you can see that there is uh, as well opportunity to to develop that capability offshore as well. Yeah, and speaking of these companies and developments, a lot of oil companies realize the inevitability of energy transition and have started changing their names from oil companies to energy companies. But what are the steps required for a big oil company to transition to renewable energy after having invested so much time, money and resources into oil production? Yeah, it's a, a really good question, Omar. As I said earlier in the uh, in the conversation, uh, I don't think there's been a time during my career in Shell when, as a company, we've not been looking at some form of renewable energy or other than how to uh, deploy it commercially in a way which would see it uh, grow and become uh, a significant business within the portfolio of activities that we have. Um, and for for every business that, that ultimately succeeds, um, be it oil and gas companies transitioning to more alternative energy uses or actually in business in general, um, usually there are more um, uh, ideas which have, have not been successful and actually, if you like, make the grade. Uh, and the challenge always is to is to commercialize technology in a way which resonates with the customer and therefore therefore sees actually a business model take off and be successful. Um, so I think that's something that companies like uh, Shell and BP and Total and others uh, are are actively working on, uh, as are many smaller independent companies and uh, small and medium uh, enterprises as well, looking at how they can take uh, technical ideas from, if you like, the laboratory and commercialize them in a way which will have a significant positive impact on society, both in terms of uh, the energy they provide, the reduction in emissions and environmental footprint, uh, and then the societal benefits that flow both to the consumer, but also then uh, to allow that business to grow and to invest in expansion and uh, and further development. I see. Other than halting climate change and being labor extensive, what other advantages do you think renewable energy has over oil and gas production? Well, um, let's not kid ourselves. If if we're able to significantly reduce the amount of oil and gas production that uh, that we make uh, globally and consume globally uh, to the extent that we're able to uh, address climate change. That is a, a huge positive uh, benefit and I think is the main goal that everybody is is working towards. I mean, today, I think the planet uses something like north of 90 million barrels of oil equivalent a day. Now, um, I can think back in my career to when it was closer to 80 million barrels of oil equivalent per day. And that number going up against a backdrop of increasing awareness and understanding of climate change um, is driven in no small measure by some of the things that you highlighted earlier, such as the growth in population and the need for energy to meet the needs of those uh, those people. Um, so it, it is a huge undertaking for us to transition away from a fuel which has become the basis on which our society largely functions over the last century or so. Um, so I think that is the main benefit. Um, but I think uh, if you if you set aside the kind of macro climate change benefits, um, we know that you know the combustion of hydrocarbons 
has other impacts in terms of local air quality uh, and other um, uh, emit, uh, emissions, which if we're not if we're not emitting them, then there is a there's a benefit to the environment and to uh, to health of society more broadly as a result of those uh, pollutants being put into the atmosphere. So uh, I think those are the things that come to my mind. Um, but I, I think the primary focus above all needs to be on, on, on resting this steady increase that we, we tend to see year on year. In fact, I think last year, due to the pandemic, was, was the first year in many that we've actually seen a reduction in the amount of oil and gas consumed on an annual basis. Um, we need to we need to maintain that downward pressure now, uh, and and transition away from the fuel, which has become um, really the driver of so much of, of of modern society, and look at how we can uh, substitute alternatives, which are going to be much better for our future. Yeah, uh, clearly there is a lot of development and research and investment that needs to go into energy transition in order to prevent climate change, and. A lot of factors to be taken into account but it was a pleasure having you on the podcast today andrew and thanks for everyone listening to today's podcast on energy transition and climate change and make sure to tune in for more episodes from tech tech fest talks see ya